join us in the dustiest corners of the video store, the back row of the grindhouse, the furthest regions of celluloid. This is Video Store Nightmares. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Video Store Nightmares. Tonight, we have a different kind of episode for you. You know, a lot of podcasts mark their 50th episode or their 100th episode, but today we're bringing you a special 666 episode. It is our 60th episode, and we're going to go through our bottom six and our top six of the movies we've covered. And this is just to celebrate making it this far and um, to reminisce about some of the films on the podcast. And also for me, like, I feel bad about rating some of the movies what I rated them. And this is almost like looking back on them. I'm like, oh, that movie was actually better than I thought it was. But anyway, if you don't know, hopefully you do. I'm Luke and I'm joined by Leland. Listeners, you can find most of these movies in some capacity somewhere on the internet if you actually go back to listen to some of these episodes you will hear where you could find it at the time but there's a lot of titles we've covered that just aren't available online anymore that isn't to say that they won't find themselves available again some point in the future but you're kind of on your own here look around see what you can find I, I've kind of been tempted to create a Video Store Nightmares YouTube channel and just upload each movie as we talk about it, but I don't want to get in any like legal copyright trouble. Well, there's a fair amount of these films that don't have rights owned by anybody anymore, so right. you wouldn't have to worry about it. But then let's say someone does buy the rights, it's on your YouTube channel, you get a strike, three strikes, your channel gets deleted. Yeah. So, you're kind of playing a, a game of chicken. Anyway, speaking about this episode, how was this process for you, like ranking these movies? Bottom six, I did not have much difficulty. I thought it would be a little harder, but I was able to compile a pretty solid list with only a couple honorable mentions. However, picking my top six favorite children was very difficult. Yeah, I was telling Leland before the podcast, like if you ask me on a different day, I might order these differently. It, it, they would be similar, though. Bottom six was harder for me than top six because I felt bad. Like all of the movies we've covered, with the exception of a couple, even the ones I don't think are very good, I still like because otherwise I wouldn't have talked about them. Right. So it's um, it feels a little mean to like rank one at the bottom. Well, just because all right, so I don't know how you did your list, but definitely not everything on my top six was a four-star film. These are just my six personal favorites after giving a lot of consideration. But even though it was extremely difficult to narrow down the pack, my ultimate qualifying criteria turned out to be which of these titles persist in my psyche, like in some fashion, well after I've watched them. So like scenes, scripts, characters that I can't forget, but also 
like recall from time to time, like regardless of whether it's voluntary, like impact. I'm ranking on impact, my personal impact. That was definitely a factor for me. I tried to weigh like how much did I enjoy it and how much did I respect it and how much influence has it had on me in terms of my taste. Um, but I was just noticing, like, is there anything that your top six all has in common? No, it's all over the place. Because uh, I was, I just realized before we started recording, mm, uh, we have done a pretty big span of time on this podcast. Like, I think our earliest film was late 60s and our newest film is late 90s. All of my films fall within a seven year time span. Oh, I definitely do not have that problem, but I will say four out of the six are from the 70s. Yeah, my list is pretty 70s heavy, so interesting. But I, I really do think this podcast is like inspired by the 70s. I think even the films we do that are later have some sort of 70s influence. The only thing I really considered about the actual year of anything on these lists was how early we covered them, right? I was constantly thinking about how much of this film is from the actual experience of watching it and how much is nostalgia filter. I like to think that I'm very highly resistant to nostalgia because I like to to shit on old things from my childhood all the time. Like there's, you know, there's like the video games and movies that people watch as kids like, oh, this is the greatest shit. And then they rewatched it at an older age and they're like, oh my God, this isn't, this isn't at all what I remember. Like, I want to say, I don't really have that problem. Like I remember seeing things as a kid that I was like, this is not really that great. And sure enough, it like that opinion withstood the test of time. Like, you know, like I, I enjoyed it at the time, but it was like, you're not, not going to be that great later on. And, yeah, no, uh, I, I think that's, I think that's true of everybody. Like, I think everyone has nostalgia goggles about certain things. Yeah. So I will say that in my top six, I want to say like half of them are from like the first half of episodes we've covered. I'm not, I didn't really think about that. But I will say that the couple of films on my list that I did not originally rate four stars, it was because of the time of reviewing it. There was some little logic problem or some technical issue that kept me from fully respecting it. But thinking back on it, or I guess in the long term, I don't really care about those little things. So even if something kept me from giving a film four stars, it might have still ended up on this list. I think everything in my top six, I gave four stars except for two. And one of them, I, I probably should have graded higher, but I was just so traumatized at the time. I didn't know how to handle it. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's start with our bottom six. So we're not going to talk about these as much. We're just going to take turns and go through them um, and, and spend the bulk of our time on the good films. But what were your honorable mentions, like the ones you almost put on the bottom? All right. The f I got like four honorable mentions for the bottom. Okay. Um, the first was Dr. Butcher MD. Okay. That, that's on mine too. It has, you know, it, there are some good things about it, but ultimately it was a very boring and worse version of Zombie 2. Let's just throw that out there. Um, the second was, and these aren't ranked, but the second was The Executioner 
which was very entertaining, but for the wrong reasons. Okay, that's uh, fair. Then The Demon Lover, which had a lot of love put into it, but had so many issues, especially in regards to acting and some of the problematic people in it. Okay. And finally, Touch of Death, just because I felt like it missed the mark so hard. Okay. I, I, like, I understand the intent behind the film. It just didn't, it did not reach out and touch me in the way a lot of these disturbing movies should. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. My honorable mentions for the bottom that like almost made it on were Dr. Butcher MD. Mountaintop Motel Massacre. I like it, but I, you know, I especially thought about the scene where the two girls audition for the fake talent agent in his hotel room. And that's so cringe, but there are parts of the movie I like. Um, and the other one that almost made it on was Deviation, which I, I, I do like, but it's, it barely holds together as a movie. Like there's not much of a plot or anything. So anyway, I almost put it down there, but. No, Deviation to me is less of a film and more of a fugue state. But yeah. at least at least that is something distinctive among like all 65 things we've covered up until this point. That was my thought. Yeah. All right. What was your number six? Number six worst film we've covered. Oof. All right. Number six, 1982's Cafe Flesh. This is at the top of my list because even though it belongs in the garbage, in retrospect, it's at least ambitious trash, right? Like, which naturally makes it the king of the dump that composes the rest of this list. I, I wondered if that was going to be on your list because I know that you weren't a fan. I, I disagree, but I understand why it's down there. Despite that, I still actually want to reach out and watch some other Wrench Dream films. So there's something there. All right. Yeah, I, yeah, I'll take that. So my number six is The Jar, which <laughs> during that episode, you know, we talked about how it, it wasn't as bad as people were making it out to be. And it's not. It, it, at least it's an interesting film, but I don't think anyone could say it succeeds at its ambitions. Um, and there are certain things about it, like our lead character, that are just painful. If we were making like a bottom six based on like the worst produced films, that would be probably top two on the list. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's um, at least there's ambition there. Yeah, at least there's ambition. What's your number five? All right. 1992's Mind, Body, and Soul. Okay. Like, this title is like a shopping list that was left at home. You have... <laughs> all three of these things are explicitly missing from this film, right? Like, the mystery is smooth-brained. The script writing is... Like, literally porn plot quality writing, but without the gratuitous sex. And, and the soul, I, I don't know, man, but, yo, I, can, I can't think of Wings Hauser anymore without immediately recalling that scene where all the cultists 
run out of the Satan house <laughs> and the resulting stampede shakes the walls because it's a fucking flimsy soundstage. Yeah. And, and there's the scene with the hot sorceress where she like summons the fucking demon, right? Yeah. And his infernal guidance is just like, hey man, here's a railroad spike. And the script never mentions it again. <laughs> like, all right, don't get me wrong. MB ampersand S is entertaining but not for any of the right reasons much like the executioner um it's like watching a hamster ball full of creamed corn roll around your house and they get wedged in between some furniture i think that's going a little far for me but believe it or not my number five is also mind body and soul wow So I, I won't add anything to what Leland said. I mean, I, I'm, we're pretty much on the same page here. I do like the movie. I think I'll definitely watch it again in the future for fun. But I mean, you know what you're getting. If you're watching an AIP film from the early 90s, you, you know what you're getting. Um, but I don't think it has much ambition up its sleeve. It has the opposite problem of the jar. <laughs> All right. What about number four? Oh, it's crazy because you know, we were talking about what what was going to be common on our lists and I was thinking maybe we had like two things on our top six and there we have one thing in common in the same spot. Incredible. <laughs> so number four is one we saw recently, 1990s The Suckling. And <laughs> our episode on this was pretty recent, so I don't think much detail is needed here. So... um to keep it short, just about every facet of this film, save for the creature effects, is just as poor and morally bankrupt as the setting's socioeconomic conditions. The, the suckling didn't make it onto either of my lists, but I think that's totally fair. My number four is another movie that I think fails in all of its efforts, The Demon Lover. Oh, this movie was a blast to talk about. And I loved watching the documentary on YouTube that just, you know, showcases its utter failure at every turn. Um, It has some awesome stories behind it, like getting chased off of um, Ted Nugent's property with guns. But I don't think anyone would argue that the film is successful. I'm not arguing it. (laughs) (laughs) You get no complaints out of me. All right, number three. Number three is 1972's Asylum of Satan. Ten minutes in, you get the most surreal breakfast scene I've ever seen since The Dreamers. And then after that, the film becomes a snooze fest that ends with the worst portrayal of Satan likely ever committed the film. I have a I'm fond of that movie. It it didn't make it onto either of my lists either, but I understand your complaints. My number three is I don't know. I feel weird about this one. It's sometimes Aunt Martha does dreadful things, which I don't think is that terrible of a film. I found it really interesting to talk about. If you didn't listen to that episode, like I suggest you go back. I think we had a really good conversation. But in my memory, the I'm, I don't remember if I said it was offensive at the time, but thinking back on it, I'm kind of offended by it. Yeah? It, 
I think it's the like I know other people are sensitive to the trend in the 70s of basically um, associating any kind of sexual uh, deviance, to use the phrase of the times, was violent. Right. So and this came from Psycho and in other things of that period where there was always some sort of cross dressing or bisexuality or mother issue. And I call those films like pop pop psychology films. And usually I like them, but I feel like this one is one of the worst exemplars of that genre. It's like they're playing into stereotypes and not doing it well. I don't know. I thought this was supposed to be like a, a, a like a shining first stardom beacon of like queer cinema. Yeah, I don't know. I I feel really ambivalent about it. I think I I think I, I think I liked it more when we talked about it, but as I think back on it, I, I'm not a fan. I will say that movie does take a while to get started. Like the first, I don't know, man, maybe quarter of that film. It, it's like trying to rev a lawnmower, and it takes 25 minutes. I also can't tell when it's trying to be funny, which is something that really irks me. Um, but anyway, number two. I think you're going to know number two and number one. Like, you already know it. Number two is 1977's The Child, which for the longest time was what I considered the absolute worst thing we had seen by a long margin. <laughs> it's boring. The script sucks. The editing sucks. The acting sucks. A year later, Luke, and, and that little girl's laughter still rings in my ears. I like that film. I still like it. E- e- even with all, even with all the egregious shit that we have covered in past episodes, I really think like the protagonist's utter helplessness is still somehow one of the top five most offensive things we have ever seen. It is so useless. <laughs> like all she would have to do to save a life is extend her arm slightly. Instead, she screams the entire last half of the film. Yeah, I, I have forgotten how useless she is, but I do like that movie, especially the atmosphere it creates. I've even watched it since we covered it. Uh, I mean, it's it, it, OK. It is not for me that that is the diplomatic answer. It was not for me. Well, I just found it incredibly boring. I'm really shocked that my number two has been spared by your list so far. And that's Crazy Fat Ethel 2. Criminally Insane 2. Luke, there's a problem here. (laughs) What's that? I forgot that was a movie. (laughs) In your defense, it barely qualifies as one, which is why it's on my list. Yeah, I... (laughs) You know, I thought about Crazy Fat Ethel 1. Never considered the sequel. I forgot there was a sequel. Criminally Insane, I still really like. I'm a fan of that movie. I think there's a great performance, whether it's accidental or not. And um, and yeah, I really enjoy it. But the second one, it's like 10 minutes of, you know, stare off into the distance, stretched out to an hour. It's painful. 
So, uh, true to form, to the unscripted nature of our podcast, where we usually leave in all of our mistakes and glaring flaws, uh, I'm going to revise my list right now. Okay. Yeah, you know, I'm actually going to bump everything down, starting from number two, and I'm going to put Crazy Fat Ethel 2 right in there. So, uh, Cafe Flesh survives. They, they do not make it on the list. All right. I will, we make the rules, right? So we can always change our minds. My number one, well, what's your number one worst film? My number one worst film, which is somehow worse than a clips movie, is 1975's Frozen Scream, which I believe is your number one and the only zero star film we have ever featured on this podcast. It is my number one. I don't know if it's worse made than Crazy Fat Ethel. Like, they're pretty comparable for that. But I, I had a, I had less fun watching it. At least with Crazy Fat Ethel too, you get to see clips from a good movie. You know, after we covered Frozen Scream and we both really hated it, and I think that's our worst episode, by the way, too. So if you're, you know, going back in time to listen to old video store nightmares, just skip that one. But because I didn't even have fun making fun of it. I don't know. It's just an it was just an unpleasant experience. But I had people reach out to me on um, Instagram to defend it, to say that. You know, they really like it. So I one person told me they thought it had like a dream logic feel. And one person just said that it was supposed to be campy and fun. And I guess if it if you groove with it like that, but I just don't. I'm going to read the IMDb synopsis. Quote, mad scientists turn people into frozen zombies and the zombies wreak havoc and kill people. End quote. No yeah. punctuation in that sentence. That's just how it's written. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I feel sorry for Renee Harmon because she was almost on this list twice with the executioner. <laughs> but she's she's definitely number one with with Frozen Scream, a hundred percent. And in in the in the defense of the, the people who reached out to you, right? It's okay to like bad shit. I oh. I like listening to power metal before the year 2006. It's great. I love it. I really enjoy it. Would I recommend it to anybody? Probably not. Uh, one of the bands that I listened to from that era has a guy who's probably never taken singing lessons in his life and English is probably his fourth or fifth language. And I don't care because for me, that shit just harmonizes on a certain level with what my brain perceives as great music. And my pre-2006 power metal is your frozen scream and that's okay yeah i mean i like some bad movies i i, I would arguably most of the movies we cover are bad movies that i like but um the child for example i think it you're right it's undisputedly a poorly made film but i do really like it so i'm not bashing on anybody who does like frozen scream it's just it's not for me so let's not belabor, uh, you know, let's not keep ganging up on Frozen Scream. Let's go to the more interesting films, which are our top six. I'm really curious to know what's on your list because I have no idea. What's your number six, Leland? My number six. 
And just to let y'all know, not only was this a hard list to compose, it was a hard list to put in any sort of order. My my original thinking was that these are my favorite children, and I am socially responsible to not admit who my favorite child is in public. You know, you can always have that in your head, but you never let that out into the open. Oh, but on that note, do you want to talk about honorable mentions? Oh, yes, we should get to the honorable mentions. Um, I have way more honorable mentions here than I'm actually going to say, but I would say the top top films that I really considered were Female Trouble, Death Laid an Egg, Poor Pretty Eddie, and then I think Forbidden Zone was going to be going to be the next the last one I'd mention but I just just to reiterate here like we have covered so many awesome films that really narrowing it down to just six like even if we made it 10 it would have been hard no I totally agree my honorable mentions on a different day like I feel I feel bad saying they're honorable mentions and they're not in the top six blonde death creep Tim Ritter's Creep, and The Witch Who Came From the Sea all came really close. So I imagine that there's some overlap there because some of the ones in your honorable mentions made my list. Yep, there's definitely overlap, but that's not surprising. No. And yeah, just like Leland said, I I could easily switch the order of these around. It's just, um, this is what I was feeling today. So what was your, go back to number six. What was your number six? Number six. 1978's Cave of the Sharks. Oh, I'm glad. That's not on my list, but I'm glad it's on yours. I'm glad we're talking about it. All right, yeah. So, like, I know this is not a four-star movie, and I know I rate this film way higher than you, but I can't help it because this ticks so many boxes for me. It's, it's, It's Italian. There's organized crime. It's got a weighty plot with, like, decisions that matter. There's practical special effects, there's sharks, there's caves, and and there's this bomb-ass fucking soundtrack that I sometimes listen to when I'm driving around. And on top of all of that, there's unsuspecting eldritch horror. This film has so much going on, and I don't care if the models are shitty, and I don't care that there are inconsequential narrative dead ends, but as a whole... I just cannot express how much I really appreciate this film because of everything we covered, this was the first and possibly the best hidden gem that I was introduced to. And I do think that this film was not methodically made to be great. I think it's a complete accident, but the stars fucking aligned. And just like pre-2006 Power Metal, this movie just really like really resonates with me. I definitely like it. If I was just grading the shark aspects of the movie and the ugly evil doll aspects of the movie, it would be really high up there. But the, the gangster stuff drags it down to me because it's, it's not played straight enough. It's too silly. That's the only complaint I have with the movie. It does have an awesome score. Stelvio Cipriani. The whole film is silly. Like, you don't take this shit, like, super seriously. But I still feel that this film has amazing synergy with all the shit that has no right to work together so well. 
Dude, it's like a Jackson Pollock painting in in the fucking flesh, like materialized, where you have all this shit that's unrelated that just blends together and composes a piece of art. Cave of the Sharks. Yeah, if I will say the 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 doll scene where all the passengers walk off into the ocean is among the most memorable haunting things I've ever seen in a movie ever. And at the end of that movie, I feel like something significant has happened, even though I don't quite understand it. And that's a feeling that I just don't get very often in movies, but I do really appreciate. It would have been really easy for this movie to end on the note where the main character just disappears into the cave. And then everyone's just like, oh, my God, like maybe he will find what he's looking for, like roll credits. But no, he gets fucking devoured by sharks on his way up to escape. (laughs) Yeah. Fucking incredible. My number six is 1973's The Baby. Ah. Which, you know, when, when we watched it, I rated it three and a half stars, and I wish I'd given it four in retrospect. Because my issue with it before was I didn't think that the motivations of the main character, whose name I think is Anne, Anne Gentry. Um, I didn't think her motivations were clear enough throughout the movie. But I rewatched it recently when Joe Bob did it on the last drive-in. And I don't know, it seemed clearer to me. She seemed more sinister from the very beginning. And maybe that was Joe Bob's commentary that made me see that angle of it. But Afterwards, I was like, you know, I was unfair. That really is a great film. It has a great Ruth Roman performance in it as the mother. It's so, it's got so many, you, you know, earlier I was lambasting pop psychology films. This is the best of them um, or one of the best of them. And there's so much going on that I think is interesting and questionable and disturbing and um, oddly humorous. I imagine this is somewhere on your list, but I, I very much appreciate it. And uh, it could have easily been higher. The, the baby was definitely not our first episode, but it was the reason we decided to start this podcast in the first place. And that, that, that really stands for something, right? Yeah, I had forgotten that, but it really was like, my desire to articulate some defense or explanation of the inexplicable. I don't, okay. I don't know if I remember this exactly, but I think, I think I did bring this up when we first recorded this episode for the baby that I, that the main character and intentions from the get go were like nefariously hidden. Yes. I'm glad that like Joe Bob brought that up and, and managed to convince you. Yeah, I don't know if he said it explicitly. I don't remember. I just, I just know. I mean, maybe you influenced me too. Um, I just know I, I felt more of that than I have in the past. That's so. also one of the few films that I had seen prior to our covering it. So yeah, I got that second watch. That actually, I think it was like my third watch at that point um, to, to really, to really dig deep and find shit that probably wasn't actually intended <laughs> in the script, <laughs> as we love to do in. A, some of these particularly shittier films what's your number five so number five number five is 1976's the witch who came from the sea and 
I had to rewatch this very recently before we started recording this episode to make sure that this was as fucked up as I remembered. And because I want to say it was over a year ago that we watched it and it did not disappoint. It was just as disturbing as the first time I saw it. Um, what I did not remember, nostalgia goggles here, was how garbage the soundtrack be. It's bad. Man, that music is so unfitting. Did we talk about that during the episode? I don't remember. I don't remember either. I have a feeling we were so busy covering the absolute trauma that this movie could cause that we didn't even get around to touching on that. Yeah. There, there are still scenes I think about in this film from time to time when uh when i think about this disturbing content in films and for that reason alone it gets to be on this list it would have been on my list like the only reason it wasn't in my top six is because i i find it unpleasant to watch and i gravitated towards films that i like to watch over and over again um and that's the only reason it was an honorable mention and not in my top six i rated this a three and a half at the time that we recorded this episode. And uh, I definitely think it's a four simply because of how much it has, again, impacted me. That that the defining quality to set, to set apart these six from everything else is how much it has stuck with me. And the fact that I think about so many of the messed up shit in this film on like a, I don't know, probably like a weekly, monthly basis for every now and then I'll see something that will remind me of something from this film. Uh, just really, really lends this film power. And I, I think it's not just the writing, the script, or the tone. It's also the main actress's performance was so fucking on point. We cover so many, uh, what, do, what do we want to call them? Sociopath of the Week episodes. <laughs> yeah. And whether it's an exhibition or a character study of some fucked up person, this is easily the, the queen of all of them. This is number one by a long shot. Well, do you remember what I rated it? I do not. I think I rated it four stars, but it might have been three and a half. I'm not well, sure. Yeah, this, is, this is an uncomfortable film to watch. It was uncomfortable watching it, and I knew what was going on. Now I knew what was happening. I will say, when I, I had seen it for the first time, I don't know, a few weeks before we did on the podcast. And I immediately wanted to watch it again at that point. Like, I just felt like there was so much that I wanted to look for that I, I didn't, I glossed over the first time. And I knew that I wanted to talk about it with somebody. And so that's why we did it for the podcast so shortly after I'd seen it. Um, and I did really appreciate that second watch. But yeah, I don't anticipate, you know, it being an annual favorite. No, definitely not. This isn't something you put on every Labor Day. <laughs> no. My number five is 1975's Switchblade Sisters. Oh, that that almost made it. I love this film. It's one of it, it's one of, if not my favorite Jack Hill film, which is saying a lot because I really like Jack Hill. Uh, I think between the acting and the writing and the directing, it manages to make something that should be absolutely silly, not only palatable, but engaging and humorous and dramatic where like, I actually care what's going to happen. And it, it went on to influence so much about 
what Tarantino and other directors like him have have taken from these early exploitation films. Like this film in particular has had great influence. Um, And I also just it combines a lot of what I like about 70s films into one one example. You have really badass female characters who are doing things like killing one another and dealing drugs and prostitution in high school you know just talking about it um makes me happy so uh, i i'm a deviant i suppose but that's number five if this was a top 10 list switchblade sisters would have been on there yeah what was your number four my number four and i would be surprised if this isn't on your list is 1994 shattered dead that, that did not make my list, actually. Really? It was an honorable mention um, that I should have mentioned. Uh, it was definitely up there. Um, but no, it didn't ultimately make the list. Yeah, so not a four-star film. But again, I, I feel that this movie has somewhat altered the way I look at certain institutions and social practices where I consider how would this work in a in a world where death didn't exist or death was um more of a handicap than a state of being yeah it's it, to a to a degree it suffered the same fate as witch for me in that i would have put it on the list if it was more pleasant to watch like if it was something that i felt like i wanted to watch over and over again um so it, it was up there i find it very important and thought-provoking and interesting um, and underappreciated. Uh, I'm glad it's on your list, but no, it probably would have been top 10 for me. No, I mean, it, it, this definitely isn't on my list just because Scoot and McRae, like, you know, reached out to us on the gram. But I still think about this movie um, on a somewhat frequent basis. Yeah, no, Scooter McRae has become um, a friend of the show. And um, I know he listens, so I'm sure he'll appreciate, you know, how impactful it's been. His, uh, his second movie, which I think is called 19 Tongues, it, it just got a Blu-ray release. So I pre-ordered that, and I told Scooter that we'd cover it once I got it. So keep, in, keep your ears open for that, I guess. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. That's cool. He says there's a shit ton on the disc, like just <laughs> hours and hours and hours of material to watch. Hmm. So I know some of his short films are going to be on it. And again, like I, I've um, been watching some more mainstream zombie films with uh, with another friend of mine, and I can't help but compare them to this film. And when I compare them, it's just there's something about like the magnitude of a traditional zombie film that just melts away in the fucking glowing visage of like Shatter Dead. Well, maybe not glowing. Maybe it's, it's just glowing with, like radiation. <laughs> It just feels much more real and much more grounded and more spiritually significant. So yeah, I, I don't think I don't think I can think of zombie films without thinking of it anymore. Hmm. My number four is 1980s Forbidden Zone, which oh honestly could have been higher. Um, I think this is a fantastic film. I think it's a really important film and an example of like the kind of things that were coming out of the New York underground at the time, the California underground, like the sort of theatrical stage performances that 
I didn't think you could really capture on film. You know, other directors that tried, like Nick Zed and Kenneth Anger and and uh, Richard Kern, like not to say those guys aren't talented and their films aren't good, but they they're more curiosity pieces than they are successful work of art. And I actually think Forbidden Zone becomes a successful movie. I think it's got really brilliant comedic performances in it. I think the music is great. The original music and the like old vaudeville type stuff, the ragtime stuff that they're covering. I think it uses offensive imagery in an ironic, absurdist way that really works. Uh, so, yeah, Forbidden Zone. I really love it. It's not on my list. It was an honorable mention. And uh, Forbidden Zone is one of the first films we have watched together that was probably like a, a good a solid qualifier for the topic of this show so i do have a lot of like nostalgic memories of us seeing this for the first time and just being like what the fuck did we just watch because it is so topically subversive and like sub subjectively subversive it's subversive on like every fucking level like there's nothing traditional about this film it's a musical and even the music like defies like convention on on what sounds are supposed to be to people who want to hear them like everything about this film is like contrarian to like what people want to experience in entertainment to a degree um but what it makes it, it it makes it work so I think the only reason I would say it's not on my list is because, you know, I've got, I went with impactfulness, right? What movies have impacted me the most? And I think this film has just been in my memory for so long that perhaps I just don't give it the same gravity as the things that I have recently seen that have really stuck out to me. That is, as I don't know if that's a long-winded fucking explanation, but that is the only <laughs> rationalization I can think of as to why it wouldn't be on a top six list compared to, say, Cave of the Fucking Sharks. <laughs> there's caves and there's sharks. People, it's hard to rank things, and it's arbitrary, right? Like, it, it feels silly to rank things, and yet it's this construct that we can use to talk about things. And th that's what's cool about it, I think. Like, I like making top 10 lists of things, not because it's the definitive list that I'm going to treasure forever, but it's just a thought exercise. It's a way of reflecting on the past. And I think that's cool. Are we on number three now? Was, was uh, Forbidden Zone your number four? Yeah. Okay. So now you're number three. And here I have 1973's The Baby. Uh, I figured it would appear. Yeah. Uh, I We've already... I don't know what else we could say about this film. It's our most listened to. Well, I should say it is our most downloaded episode. We certainly can't see how many people listened to it for five minutes and immediately deleted it off their, their fucking phone or whatever. Yeah, it could be many. Yeah, uh, I, it certainly isn't our most downloaded episode because we did a fantastic job on it. That was like, what, our sixth, seventh episode at most? It was early. Yeah, we were still getting our vibe together. And um, I don't... I don't think we had the quite perfect synergetic vibe yet. We've gotten better, but I think some of our early episodes are pretty rough because, you know, we're new to this. But the baby. Yeah, I remember you 
I think you thought I was crazy for not giving it four stars at the time. And yes, I, um, still, do. I still do, but you've come around. Yeah, I, I, I have, I, I, I it's going to be that way about my next movie too, but it, there is something great about it. It's easy to criticize this film though, because of like you're saying the pop psychology bullshit right now, I am like totally fine with throwing like scientific realism, psychological realism out the fucking window as long as you have a script and characters and like fantastic setting and synergy to make me not give a shit about any of it. Because there is no way that the baby in the baby would be as functional as he is. No. He'd be like a feral fucking wombat. <laughs> he he wouldn't have an actual baby voice either. No, he, he would just be clawing and shitting and attacking everything with like no socialization. It would be a, it would be a horror show. The, the, that guy was in like good shape. He like exercised and shit. This baby would be like malnourished, like fat in the wrong places, thin in the wrong places. It it would be if that movie were made today. If they would get somebody that would look like Christian Bale's The Machinist to be the baby, and it would be <laughs> dark as shit, they wouldn't live. They would live in a crack house. It would be awful. But <laughs> because this was made in the right time, the aesthetics just happened to work out to bring us this incredibly unbelievable but still fantastic story with a twist ending that the for on a first watch I did not expect. No, I don't think anyone does. It's no, certainly I, one of. It's one of the most unexpected twist endings I've ever seen. And, it, you know, especially when you get older, um, you really appreciate twist endings that you, you don't see coming. Like, if you, especially if you've watched and consumed as much media as us and you get hit with a twist ending that's good, that makes sense, that can actually conceivably be determined during the consumption of said media, it's like a fucking joy. Like, you open a fucking Kinder Egg and inside is like a gold ring it's nice you, you, you pawn it pawn the gold ring the baby is the kind of movie that i do this for that i i used to go to the video store and rent you know tons of bad movies every friday night and now i obsessively find them on ebay and in thrift stores and antique shops and wherever i can dig them up and it's to find more movies like the baby that i never would have seen otherwise my number three is what I consider kind of a flawed masterpiece, and that's 1979's Phantasm. I don't think this is a perfect film. I don't even think it really makes sense. Um, I think that it spawned a series that gets progressively worse, but they're all interesting. They're all worth seeing. But for whatever reason, the characters in that movie just resonate with me. And I love that it spends just as much time establishing the relationship between these three guys as it does on the scary stuff. And I, I think that its sense of surrealism and visuals are, are great. I think it's got one of the best musical scores of a horror film ever. Um, and it gave us like iconic characters like Angus Scrim as the tall man. It's something I watch multiple times a year. Um, even if it's just for its aesthetics, which evoke like a sense of fall. And that's why we did it around Halloween last year. But yeah, it's it's not a perfect film, um, but it is one of my favorites. It's no secret that you 
are a diehard Phantasm 1 fan, and you, you love this film way more than I do, but I, I do appreciate it. It wouldn't be on any of my top 10 lists. This is your Cave of the Sharks, except your film is way more culturally relevant in every <laughs> way imaginable. Which um, might have something to do with it. I saw it when I was I saw it when I was a teenager, right? So there might be a lot of nostalgia here too. But when I when I think of Phantasm, when I watch Phantasm, um, I think about the kinds of films that we initially bonded over, which were the more traditional um, horror films from like the eighties and nineties. Not to say Phantasm is traditional by any means, but it certainly is more. Um, standard than a lot of the bizarro bullshit we cover on this <laughs> right so um for me that is the nostalgia that comes with phantasm um i, I i'm not as uh, captivated by it as you are i'm still looking forward to watching phantasm 2 at some point in the future on this show um and i totally get why it's on your top six that's that's like your that's like your vanity pick it's your cave of the sharks i totally get it and What's your... I, I just want to mention, man, yeah, that soundtrack was bomb. I, oh, it's it's a great score. I listen to it all the time. And um, I, I watched, I, yeah, like, dude, I watched the HD remaster or whatever for when we covered that episode, and the sound was so fucking crisp. Yeah, uh, I know producers have had a field day sampling and twisting that thing around, so it continues to give us gifts. What's your number two? 1977's a la carta we've done 59 episodes and nothing else has quite matched the atmosphere of a la carta for me it's it's otherworldly and seemingly anachronistic nature just puts off a really odd vibe that makes it stand out against the the competition here and it's all glued together with like this low-key sexual awakening of the protagonists and then there's this scathing critique on religion that i guess doesn't really necessarily have to be appreciated to get the most out of this film but it's great i i, I like it uh, and i feel like we could not have a top six list off for either of us without having one satanic film on it because we cover something like we've cut what 30 what 30 percent i came up with the statistic before it's probably more now percent of our films center around satan we well we are satan on this list we already talked about mind body and soul that's the the wrong list i'm talking about the <laughs> top six i mean i also put asylum of satan on my bottom six because it makes them look so bad you're right <laughs> how dare you slander our king no, Alicarta didn't make my list. It could have. Um, I think my only reservation about it is that I don't, I don't really care about the characters. Like the characters don't do anything for me, but I really do love like the imagery and the music and the setting and the what it's trying to evoke. Um, it's definitely a movie I enjoy. I'm be I'm really beginning to wonder if we have the same number one. I would be very surprised. My number one is very edgy. Mine might be as well, but I don't know. My number two is 1974's Female Trouble. Um, I had to have a John Waters film on my list, and this is my favorite. Uh, it was 
it like Forbidden Zone, it was one of those movies that when I saw it early on, it really shaped what I enjoy in avant-garde or surrealistic or countercultural or you know cult midnight movies, whatever you want to call this genre. Um, it it really influenced me and. Uh, I continue to see it as a real, it encapsulates what what John Waters is to me, which in all his movies and his lecture tours and his books, he's in the most lovable and strangely ethical way possible. He's offending everybody in like, it's true. It's the true avant-garde, right? It's just like Forbidden Zone in that it's, it's anarchic. It's it's throwing a wrench in our traditional morality and as a result, forcing us to confront and question that morality. That's why John Waters films are like an important part of the um, LGBTQ movement and an important part in the liberation movements of the 70s. Um, he is a He's a countercultural hero, I think, that's just, and, and this is his best film. Um, it's got a great performance by Divine. We get to see her go all the way from a high school student to a anarchic terrorist beauty model of sorts, uh, you know, who's firing upon the crowd from a stage show. And I love uh, Mink Stoll as her daughter who Divine tells her is most definitely retarded that they even had her tested. I can't help but think through the lines and laugh about it. So yeah, female trouble could have been number one, but number two. That was the highest honorable mention I had, and it was really hard not to include it, but I just don't, I recognize it's genius. It's one of my favorite movies that we've seen on this podcast. It's easily a top 10, but it's not something that I think about on a regular basis. Yeah, and I get that. And I would also say that, you know, John Waters is fantastic, but he's created a lot of different films. Like, so there's a lot of material out there. Yeah, let's make it stand out a little less as a single title just because, you know, there's a whole brand out there of his work. Whereas a lot of the stuff that, I feel like are on my list are just standalone like monoliths out in the fucking field by themselves that Each makes sense forgotten decrepit but still valuable to the scholars that are willing to wade out into the tall grass to read the symbols are you getting way too you're getting way too metaphorical now so Man, I just talked about a fucking hamster ball full of corn. Like, whatever. Oh, that was a good one. Tell us your number one. All right. Number one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to set this up. This is my edgy pick. And it would definitely be on my top 10. And I was just forced to number these. I, I was coerced to number these be- right before we started recording. But I'm still going to put this at number one as, as a meta pick. When you look at, at media today whether it's streaming services, theme parks, um, you know, video games. There's very rarely nowadays the a risk that corporations are willing to take on original IPs. 
And this is not exactly um, defining of our generation of media, um, because if you look back at like, say like the, the 80s and even the early 90s, there's like sequel fever. And like, we kind of have that today, but it's not as bad where you'll have like a movie and then like six or seven sequels to it to kind of cash in on what has already been proven to be a successful formula. And we have that today, but it's less in sequels and more in like spin-offs, reimaginings, remakes, etc. And that shit gets tiresome. So for my number one, what I really appreciate is 1988's The Blob, because it is a remake, but it is is sacrilegious to the most important human perception that we have talked about throughout this episode nostalgia this is a film that took what was a beloved family's 19 what 50s 60s horror film that you could watch and maybe it was terrifying back then but now you could leave it on in front of your fucking three-year-old and you don't have to worry about them getting traumatized they took that formula and turned it into like an apex predator haunting film hunting film where you have teenagers being dissolved by a supernatural entity that cannot be immediately understood like is this a force of nature is this a malevolent is this like a malevolent monster is this just a weapon by a greater species is this just bacteria that just happened to evolve into something that is like anathema to human existence? It doesn't matter because this thing's rampage and body count and property damage amount is all that matters through the runtime of this film. But not those weren't the only things that were hurt in the blobs rampage. It also hurt the feelings of all the boomers that grew up and what the silent generation that grew up watching the blob coming into this film, I would only imagine tr looking to see like a faithful reimagining and getting their fucking socks blown off by watching all of this horrific violence against a small American town where there's absolutely no ethical code. There's no, there's no moral reasoning behind what this thing is doing. And there's definitely not like an unspoken code where the victims have to be guilty of something to warrant or deserve death. No, this thing eats children. It eats unarmed women and police officers who have probably never violated civil rights in their lives. Nobody is spared from this thing. And much like the Blob's victims, this thing, this movie completely pissed off an entire generation that was in love with these original golden cinema bullshit that the original blob was like in the middle of right and for me that makes it number one because not only that it didn't just like offend or like traumatize people right like you know which you came from the sea will like make you want to go to therapy but like the blob probably mentally destroyed so many people who went in expecting some traditional horror film and then they're, they just left absolutely devastated and that that is like the embodiment of what i think like subversiveness 
could could hope to achieve. I mean, that's a really good um, argument, I think, for the blob. I, if I was ranking like the most entertaining films on our our show, I think it would it would if it wasn't number one, it would be close. I think maybe I kind of take the blob for granted because I saw it when I was really young and it's been there my entire life. It's not something I like discovered in adulthood. So I don't think I really thought about it when I was making my list, but it would easily be in the top 10. I guess one thing I'd say is it's it's just a popcorn movie to me. Like it's really entertaining and I love watching it and I do every now and then, but it doesn't really make me feel anything. Um, no, it, it's a popcorn movie to us, to our generation. Yeah. But when you go and look at the history of this film, they originally wanted the main actor from the original film to have like a small cameo in this remake. And he took one look at the script and was just fucking aghast. He's like, I refuse to participate in this project. Yeah. That no, man, it, it, that it, man's it, line, that interview and probably perfectly encapsulates the normal studio audience reaction to this film, which you can also see it reflected in the box office sales, unfortunately. Yeah, this movie bombed. It it was not beloved at the time. But so did the the John Carpenter's The Thing bombed as well. Um it, you know, and now that's recognized as a masterpiece as well. So well, that is not my number one, um, but I, it's a very good one. My number one kind of caught me by surprise when I was thinking back over the list and trying to think which of these films really stands out the most in my mind, like which resonates with me the most, which do I think back on um, the most. And it's 1973's Messiah of Evil. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's... You know, this is another kind of flawed masterpiece because if you listen to that episode, we talk about how the ending was originally conceived to be something much different. And basically because of budget and because the original writer directors were fired from the project and an editor took over the ending bit and ended up being something they totally did not plan. And the unplanned ending leaves some plot strands resolved. But I think that's accidentally it accidentally benefits the movie because it leaves things mysterious and misunderstood and unknown. And I think if supernatural things do happen in the real world, they feel the way this movie does where they're not explained and they're not fully understood. And there's a degree of mystery. The whole movie feels like a dream. I think it is the most visually distinctive of all the films that we've done. Um, it has at least two set pieces that are among the most underappreciated but horrifying scenes in history. And that's the uh, the grocery store scene where um, Mariana Hill from The Baby is being um, tracked down by the zombies in suits, like gradually, and the scene in the movie theater where the other female character is like slowly surrounded by these sort of living dead cult members, whatever they are. Um, those two scenes, like I'll never forget in the original VHS release of the movie, it starts and ends with a song, hold on to love, which I find 
incredibly distinctive and eerie and i'm so pissed they took it off of the dvd version i don't know why but it just works it's just a it's a dream the movie is a dream it it's it's i could kind of zone out while watching it it almost hypnotizes it if if appreciation of these kinds of movies is subjective like if it's just based on what affects us the most um this just happens to to gel with me for whatever reason so number one messiah of evil the only thing i'd say is i don't think uh, mariana is the character that gets hunted in the grocery store because that girl does not walk out of there oh yeah mariana hill is the main character Mm -hmm. right i was thinking that she was the she was the guy's like older girlfriend but no you're right mariana hill is the main our main character in that movie. I mean, I will say, if we were making a top 10 list of uh, unforgettable scenes, that grocery store shit would be in there 100%. Yeah, I can't... Like, the, 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 no music, no soundtrack. All you hear is, like, the squeaking of fucking nine-to-five work shoes as, like, a crowd of everyday people, like, pursue her through shopping aisles. And that... I don't know if that was accidental or intentional because... A lot of this movie is unscored because they ran out of money and people got fired. But the natural sounds in the movie make up all the difference. Like, I think the sound of the beach at night is really creepy. Um, and it just feels so vast and empty and alone. And that movie captures that feeling better than any movie I've ever seen. It, it captures a feeling that I feel in the real world. Like it replicates that space for me. I'm being really like, um, you know, vague and poetic in my language, but that's how this movie makes me feel. It's not very concrete. Um, it's a very lyrical, like poetic film almost. But yeah, yeah, when I originally conceived of doing, you know, a top six list or a top 10 list, I wasn't even thinking of Messiah of Evil. But when I started really looking through the films, it it really stood out. That and Blonde Death were my last honorable mentions. So it was definitely close. So, uh, you know, our lists are pretty different. You know, we share the baby. But I think it's interesting that my list revolves around things that I feel like have like personally affected me, whether it be positive or negative. And I... Th- I think it's interesting that your list is mostly comprised of films that have been seen as influential to, to future artists. So, you know, Switchblade Sisters influenced, um, you know, Quentin Tarantino and God knows how many other directors for, you know, crime films, um, you know, female trouble, like anything John Waters has done has obviously been um, immediately referenced and um, inspired and copied by so many so many directors man I yeah, wish I, people ripped off the baby you know more <laughs> films like the baby <laughs> i would i would love more films like the baby but i can see how my movies some of them have that in common but i wouldn't say that's why i put any of them on the list i think a lot of the films on my list with the exception of is there an exception <laughs> no um so all of the films on my list are ones that I saw a long time ago, the first time. 
like I first saw as a teenager. And so they've had a long time to stay with me and for me to watch them again and think about them. And I think that that played into my list a lot was was thinking about the films I had the deepest relationship with. So that might have biased me against some films that I was seeing, you know, only recently or for the first time. You are washing yourself with the waters of nostalgia. Perhaps. But I I don't have that same problem because I've only what introduced like one film to us so far. and, And that's it. I mean, I got some other ones on that list. We haven't gotten around to them yet. Um, yeah, the eight ball hasn't spit any of them out yet, but we did do uh, GBH, and I was wondering where you thought that um, fell in your banking. I I feel like my list only had room for one vanity pick, and if I had to choose between Cave of the Sharks and GBH, I, I, I'm going to go with the Sharks, but I still really love that film. Yeah, it it. I think it would have been like if I ranked all 59 films we've done, I think it would have been somewhere in the middle for me. Uh, I, I don't know if it would have been top 10, but it, it would have been like a, a close contender for top 10. Okay. I hope you all enjoyed this nostalgia episode. Um, something a little bit different. If you want to hear more things like this in the future, let us know. Until then, you can follow us on Instagram at video.store.nightmares, where I post everything we do. Leland, any last words? Thank you for your continued support. And thank you for listening. Ha 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 